Uh, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. We have a bit of a special episode for you today. Um, it's just going to be me and Max Kim, who is a journalist based in Seoul, and he recently wrote an article for The New Yorker that you can read. We can put it on in the show notes uh, with a link, but... Max is the guy that we want to talk to about the big question of Korean testing, which is something I think that everybody is curious about. It's talked about almost endlessly in the American and Western media. And to me, at least, it seems to be almost this black box, almost like this uh, sense of magic, like how how are the Koreans doing this so well? And uh, there's not much clarity on what the Koreans, quote unquote, are actually doing, why they're doing it. Um, and... Uh, we just know that like, if we could do it like the Koreans, if we would be fine. I don't know if that's true or not true, but to answer all those questions, we have Max on. Uh, Max is joining us from Seoul today. Max, how are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. Um, and I hope I can answer these big questions. I, I want to start with the MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome Disease. Um, and because I think a lot of what happened in Korea dates back to that time. Can you just give me a quick synopsis of what happened uh, with MERS um, and the Korean response back then? You know, there's been talk about how Confucianism was behind, um, you know, South Korea's, you know, good response to COVID-19. But it was actually MERS, the MERS outbreak in 2015. Um, And long story short, the, the scale of the outbreak was obviously not nearly as as big as this one. But um, the government, the conservative administration at the time, um, they didn't do you know any of the disclosures. Um, or the system was just not in place at the time. Um, so there were a lot of instances. There were some instances of infections spreading through hospitals, and people didn't know that certain hospitals had been breached. Um, and so that kind of just created this atmosphere of, of panic. None of the testing protocol, none of the testing apparatus or communication apparatus right. was around at the time. So, so what we're doing right now is, you know, pretty much new. And it was prompted by the disaster that was the response to the MERS outbreak. Um, and this point about uh, patient information disclosures, knowing, you know, infection routes where confirmed carriers have been, um, this is kind of the centerpiece of the current containment protocol. And this was directly a result of um, the failures of, of the MERS outbreak response. So wh- when did that start happening? Because, you know, like, I, I think that we in the United States are probably going to go through something similar. Um, when you say that, like, there's no information, people are kind of running around blind and smacking into things and, and not telling the public that much. And, you know, in the end, just kind of throwing their hands up. That actually feels quite familiar, I think, to many people in the United States. And the hope, I think, is here is that, you know, once we've now had our, you know, pandemic, MERS didn't really come here. SARS wasn't that big of a deal. H1N1 was, but it was something that was mostly ignored mm-hmm. um, and killed, you know, quote unquote, only 19,000 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the hope here is that we will start building out that type of infrastructure. So when did Korea start building out their infrastructure to deal with uh, with a pandemic? So I, as far as I know, that just started immediately after the MERS outbreak. Um, it was a pretty huge deal here. Um, and then this, the law passed, the, the Infectious Disease Control Act, I think it was, or, or something similar to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that basically allows the government to 
you know, track data, track smartphone GPS, track your credit card payment records, travel uh, medical records um, in the event of a disease outbreak if uh, I think warning levels are the third highest or above. Um, and then after that, you know, this testing system um, was put in place. I believe they did a bunch of rehearsals, um, including one that was eerily similar to what actually happened with COVID-19. Um, so, and these are these are uh, these are these are rehearsals that are not like I, they're not rehearsals of something that they know is going to happen, right? Like it's not like they knew that a disease exactly like this was going to come down the pipeline. These are just general, like if there is a breakout of something, then this is what we're going to do. It's just kind of a general rehearsal. It was, um, I'm sure it was intended as a general rehearsal, but one of the rehearsals they did, um, and I think Reuters reported on this, um, was it ended up basically happening like the rehearsal. Um, they, they were practicing for um, a type of SARS virus, which is um, the current coronavirus. Um, and they, so basically that hypothetical scenario actually came to life. Um, and that was obviously a stroke of luck. But the, the, mm -hmm. the point is that um, they were preparing for these, you know, various eventualities, um, different type, types of disease outbreaks, um, including one that's more infectious and transmiss transmissible than, than MERS which COVID-19 is. Yeah, because I guess in the end, there aren't really that many types of pandemics that you can have, right? Like you can have one that kills every single person it touches, and that one is by nature going to be a little bit less infectious or a lot less infectious. And then you're going to have ones that are uh, basically the flu, which is something that everybody, I think, in Korea, certainly here in the United States, has for you know either good or bad reasons learned to live with. And then there's something like this, where it is deadly and also transmissible so yeah it, it, like was it just like let's just these are like the six or seven types of categories or however many that we can generally prepare for so let's just prepare for them uh you know as different types is that is that how they were thinking about it pretty much i think they were targeted on a type of sars virus so they sort of predicted um this current situation um just something that spreads a lot more quickly than mers um, something that would require, um, you know, necessitate patient information disclosure to kind of get the public on board um, and, and launch this kind of nationwide containment protocol. Um, so they, I think they expected something worse than MERS to happen, which it did. Um, this is all going through the Korean CDC, is that right? The KCDC? Um, like, uh, yep. so now like the, the, the one thing that I wanted to know, and I think that, you know, it is, again, it's something that I think people here in the United States are a little bit worried about, or they don't quite understand, which, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that in that they're ignorant about it. I also don't understand, uh, you know, like does the KDCDC operate independently? Because, you know, in, in, when MERS happened, it was the, uh, it was the sort of, it was the presidency of Pak Geun-hye, you know, who was ultimately, mm -hmm ousted and now you have uh you have a much you have a democratic uh president you have somebody who has very different politics who assumed power after the old president was was ousted does the kcdc operate you know without without really caring or without too much input from from whoever is president absolutely not and i'm glad you brought that up because that is 
So a lot of experts, one of their gripes is that the KCDC is not an independent agency, um, like the US CDC. Um, and so basically they're a satellite agency, they're subordinate to the Ministry of Health and Welfare, which obviously makes them somewhat beholden to whatever administration is in power. Um, so it's they, they can't really plan for the long term um, independently of the, the current government. So this is something that um, one of the experts I interviewed for the story, Om um, Jung-shik, he said that this, this was kind of the next step for South Korea in, in upping their containment uh, capacities, is building more infectious disease hospitals and making the KCDC an independent agency. So is there a sense then that if it had been, you know, the Park like administration, you know, that if it had been, and I don't think it has anything to do with like conservative or not conservative, but certainly incompetent, right. that perhaps the the response would have been, that the response would have been worse? Because, I, you know, I think that our understanding here of it for the people who have been paying attention is that the KCDC was kind of on autopilot. So you're, you're saying that that's not true. I think that it just all kind of fit together. So I think the KCDC as an entity was also um, overall just better prepared um, because this was just a few years after the MERS outbreak, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But also the government in power, the current Moon Jae-in administration, uh, like you said, is is more competent than the last uh, Pakana administration. And I think that all directly ties together. Like all the government ministries started to work together um, with the KCDC, um, and they've been kind of sharing this frontline role, um, or this leadership role, rather. Um, so it's all been kind of working together. Um, it wasn't just the KCDC. Like the prime minister, for example, he went down to Tegu when the outbreak was at its peak um, to kind of direct the mm. response over there. So I think, and as you saw with, with the recent parliamentary elections here on the 15th, um, a lot of this is being, you know, is redounding to Moon Jae-in's credit, the administration's credit. And I think that's fair, um, partly because it, it wasn't just uh, the KCDC. Let's go forward then to the point where, you know, this outbreak in Wuhan is starting. Um, do you remember when people started talking about coronavirus in Korea? Um, I do. Um, you know, at first it was these reports of this mysterious, you know, pneumonia. Um, And at the time, I don't think, basically, I don't think it, you know, really hit home until patient 31. Because at that point, until that point, I think South Korea had like 20 or so cases. Well, they had 30 cases before patient 31. But it was like patient 31 being for like the listeners who don't know is this famous Te- uh, sort of, I don't, I don't know how to even it's explain like a it, but it's sort of illustration. Type, um. <laughs> yeah, it is somebody who I think now by the current parlance would be called a super spreader. Uh, Korea had about had thirty one patients, and thirty of them they contained very well. And then patient thirty one went out and went to like a banquet, right? And she went she to, to church and, she- and then uh, <laughs> like this church, you know, worship. You know, some people call it a cult. Yeah. Um, yeah, she went everywhere, basically, uh, that you would not want to go and somehow spread it to almost everyone that she came in contact with. So, so that was so even with like 31 patients in 
in Korea, people weren't terrified of this thing, huh? Like they weren't, they weren't like, oh no, it's it's here now. Right. It was like it was like just a sort of simmering tension because um, so the MERS outbreak, in terms of scale, it was a lot smaller. And I remember um, when the MERS outbreak happened, it was just the only thing that really changed was maybe we'd wear masks in public transportation um, on, on subways and stuff, and if someone coughed, shoot them a dirty look. Um, but that was about it. And that, that was how things were until patient 31. And then after, you know, Tegu blew up, people were probably like, at least I was like, wow, oh shit, this is, you know, getting really, really bad. And then it kind of spread to the rest of the world. And here we are. When does this KCDC then really get kicked into gear? Because, you know, the, the, uh, in trying to contain this thing, because obviously if they're containing 30 of 31 people, then they're doing something, right? And if 31 people are testing positive, then it means that they've at least tested 31 people. So when, when, did, they, when did they start all this? They started it, you know, very early. They, um, the government was definitely aware of this before the public. Um, and they, you know, early on, they, they decided on a strategy of um, early tracking, early testing, and early treatment. Obviously, nobody knew that the the biggest outbreak would be in Tegu, but um, the reason they were able to control it so well in in Seoul, uh, in the capital area at first, was because again, you know, MERS had kind of left everyone with a greater awareness of these things, and more importantly, you know, all the government officials, the KCDC, they had gone through an outbreak already, so the whole system was already very streamlined. Everyone was. Everyone had basically championship DNA, um, to use a sports metaphor, <laughs> right? They've, they've beat about once, so they know what it's like. They know what the actual experience is like. And, you know, government officials have told me firsthand that this, is, this made a huge deal, that they had experienced it once, so they were better prepared um, when this actually came around. So, yeah, the sports metaphor is like Michael Jordan losing to the Pistons twice, he can't get back, you know, or, mm-hmm. or losing to the Pistons and, and then learning how to win. <laughs> um, so how do they, you know, in the here in the United States, and I don't mean to compare everything to the United States, but, you know, we had a very difficult time trying to develop tests. And honestly, it seems like of when we do retrospectives of all of this, one of the things that people will point to, I think, is the fact that uh, the CDC and the FDA could not figure out how to make a test that worked. How did, how did the Korean government get out in front of this and start making tests so quickly? The KCDC, you know, immediately contacted, you know, four or five um, Korean companies to develop tests and they just fast-tracked everything. Um, And I think what's key here is that they just knew that they needed tests. They knew that this would be um, maybe the most important element in containment. And so they just got started on it right away. How long after patient 31, right? Like, so that is... uh... That is when, when Korea's cases start spiking. Mm-hmm. Like when, when did this massive testing apparatus that everyone talks about, um, when did that start showing up? Like when did you start seeing it on you know, the news? When did you start seeing these stations up around the city? Mid-February, after patient 31 showed up. Um, obviously, you know, the cases spiked. And for the people who haven't been following the South Korean case very closely, at one point, we had, I think like 10 days after, we had something like 900 cases a day. Um, mm-hmm. And all the while, um, testing centers were being built. Um, I think sometime in late February or early March, we had the you know the drive-through testing centers that um, got a lot of media attention internationally. Um, 
that was the period when they really ramped up testing from something like a few thousand to around 20k a day. Um, and obviously it, it paid off given how many patients came out of Daegu. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's one part that has always been confusing to me, which is um, why did they think of all the different types of containment strategies that you can do, mm -hmm. right? So one of them is like this medieval thing that we're doing here, which is to, and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but, you know, it, it, the quarantine is literally a medieval <laughs> tactic right. of making sure that everybody sits in their <laughs> yeah. home, right? Um, you have other... You have other tactics which are based on treatment, and then you have things like, you know, Sweden is doing where they say, let's just go for cured immunity as quickly uh -huh. as we can. Testing does not seem like the most intuitive method of trying to contain this thing. So can you tell me a little bit about, like, was this something that was written into the, into the game plan after MERS, or is this something that was decided on the fly? I don't think that during MERS they would have anticipated, you know, such need for, like, you know, mass, mass testing, like we're seeing right now. Um, but one of the one of the experts that I s spoke to for the story said that um, when they after they fa found out it was a pneumonia, right? And at first, China said there was no human to human transmission, but they dis they disregarded that intel. And I think this was important because well, why did why why did they why did they do that? Because you know we did not over here. Like why why did they disregard the Chinese intel? About because that? You know, from a medical perspective, they just thought it was impossible that a type of pneumonia, um, based on the sort of reports that they were seeing, couldn't be transmitted between humans. So they proceeded with the assumption, under the assumption that it was transmissible between humans. And this was when things were just unclear. There really wasn't a lot of information. Um, and that's when they decided on this strategy of, you know, early tracking, um, early testing and early treatment. Um, so I think this was, you know, they they kind of started this, they decided on this very early on. The thing about the head of the KCDC, Chung Eun-gyung, is that she was a, I believe she was a contact tracer during the MERS outbreak. Um, and a lot of the government, government officials, even on the local level, um, all, you know, played some role in, in the MERS outbreak response. So I imagine that she was very aware of, you know, how quickly they would have to move how quickly, how fast they'd have to react to really catch this thing. Um, and so a lot of credit has been rightfully going to the head of the KCDC. Yeah, it seems like such a fortuitous thing in some ways, you know, because you don't know what's going to come. You don't know what infectious disease is going to come mm -hmm. down the line. And, you know, you're, the last one you had, there wasn't really that much trouble spotting people who had MERS, right? They just died. <laughs> like it was, it was, it was a, it, it had a much higher death rate. It was, it was much more uh, obvious. And this one, you know, what we're dealing with, with the, with COVID-19 is something that is much harder to mm -hmm. detect. And so having a contact tracer seems like, uh, and, and somebody who believes that testing is the only way that you can find this thing. I mean, that, that, that seems like it was, you know, I don't think it was luck, but it certainly sounds extremely fortuitous that that happened. And um, exactly. Like you said, you know, MERS was, compared to COVID-19, it was this kind of slow-moving, albeit more lethal uh, disease. But one of the things that, you know, the people here, the experts here, the KCDC noticed early on was that COVID-19 was, you know, exceptionally transmissible. And they also suspected that there could be asymptomatic transmission. So I think that really okay. kind of drove home the importance of testing 
and kind of isolating these patients early because they knew it could spread like wildfire um, once it kind of broke out into community transmission, which didn't really happen with MERS. Okay, so I think that we can fast forward a little bit because I think the one thing that the listeners most likely do know is that once this testing apparatus started, uh, tap, testing apparatus started getting built, you have drive-through testing, you have walk-up testing where people are basically in a greenhouse with little arm plastic arm things that poke out, right? So they don't have any mm-hmm. actual contact with the with the with the uh, with the infected people. You also have. Uh, you know, build-outs in hospitals where doctors, healthcare workers are protected with, with PPE. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a very high rate of healthcare workers in Korea being infected. These are all things that people have gone over time and time again. I think I've right. written about a lot. Now, I want to go forward to the part that you wrote about in this piece for the New Yorker, which I thought was excellent and very Thank interesting. You. And that's what is a, a lot. <laughs> that no worries. That's what a lot of people are worried <laughs> are are thinking about right now. And maybe it is premature for p- us in the United States to think about it now. But I think that this is where we're at, which is what is a strategy for testing and tracing? How, what do we do with the people who, uh, who, who, who are infected? When we see new outbreaks happen, what happens? And Korea has a system for this as well. This is what you wrote about. Um, and I wanted to talk about the start of your piece, which is, you know, you, you talk about yourself, you talk about where you live, and that you talk about getting this text message that says that there is, an, that there are, is a case near where mm-hmm. you live. Can you just tell me about that? Like, what, what's in that text message? You know, uh, what emotions does it trigger in you? What information does it do? And what can you do with that <laughs> okay. information? I'm going to start with what emotions does it trigger in me? Um, <laughs> that, that it, one first. It yeah. triggers, you know, it, it depends. Like, I, once I register the message, if it's like an actual patient, then it triggers, I would say right now, mild alarm. Um, at first it was like, mm-hmm. you know, oh shit. You know, like I remember the first two, you know, it was a very novel thing. Like a patient in my neighborhood? Like, what the hell? Um, now we've been a little more accustomed to hearing about it. But, you know, even now, I, I think I got one, the 24th patient in my neighborhood. I got a text message yesterday. And it's, like, concerning because, like, now I'm noticing through the information relayed in these text messages that um, people coming in from overseas through the airport, um, they made mm-hmm. up, I think, like, over half or somewhere near half the, the total new cases. Um and we're actually pretty close to the airport. I don't know if that makes a difference. But, um, yeah. So when I see them, I'm, you know, I, I kind of tense up. I, I make sure to check the routes. Um, and usually the messages link you to, like, a, a longer blog post, you know, detailing where this patient in question has been. Um, these days it seems like most of them get tested at the airport and then just go straight home to be quarantined. Um, so that's a bit of a relief. Oh, okay. But before, you know, you'd get these like long lists of like, you know, this person went where, this person went to this restaurant that I recognize, um, and so on. So like, <laughs> it, it was a little like nerve wracking reading some of those um, accounts. Well, when did they roll this system out? Um, I imagine that it wasn't there from the very beginning. Like, when did you start getting text messages with little maps on them showing like a infected person walking through so the text messages themselves don't have maps um the maps oh but like there's lists lists of places so 
if I recall correctly, this started pretty much immediately. Um, there wasn't any like, you know, the first patient that emerged in my neighborhood, I got a text message. So um, I think that this was already, I mean, they prepared for this by passing that Infectious Disease Act. So I think this was, you know, there from day one. How do you know, how do they know that you're in that neighborhood? Is it based on like a geolocation through the phone? Is it based on property records, rental records? Like how, how do they know that you're in that space and what your phone number is to send you a text message? So this is like, this is based on geolocation um, data from telecom companies. Um, so they just, I, I guess they GPS track you. They, they know where your phone is and if it's within uh, five kilometer radius of a certain district office they'll they'll you know beam you a message does, does that bother anybody because i think here look i think that generally the privacy concerns here that people are bringing up saying that americans would never consent to this is very overblown like i think most americans would allow this to happen if they thought that it would you know make it so that they don't die but uh, was there was there a concern about this? Because it does seem pretty invasive. You know, they're just saying, oh, this person's clearly here. We know this because their cell phone's there. And we're going to send them a text message about this other dude who's been here, 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 and here. I mean, it, there is a dystopian angle to it or a dystopian uh, scent, I guess I'll say, to, to all this. So <clears throat> I think the privacy concerns are valid. But as far as the text messages go, I can't say that it feels, you know, speaking from a personal perspective, all too invasive. Um, these emergency text alerts have existed before COVID-19. Um, you know, the biggest sort of invisible killer before this outbreak was fine dust, um, air pollution, and we'd get text messages warning us of like particularly bad days. Um, so, you know, people are mostly used to these text messages. Um, they're not all about COVID-19. Um, so I don't think there, I don't think really people, any people object to these messages except um, when they get excessive. So when it's not really an emergency, you know, when they're just like reminding you to social distance, that's <laughs> when it gets like, okay, you know, this is enough. But um, uh, so they sometimes blast out like general messages, being like, "Hey, uh, remember to socially distance. Yeah, wash your hands." So like, it's yeah, because like, like I. It, here in the United States, they do a, certain, a similar thing where, you know, if there's a flash flood warning or, uh, you know, somebody is abducted and they do blast out warnings to everyone's cell phone in the area. That's right. So it's not so different. I don't right. Think. So it's not um, really an alien. It's not right. this like strange thing. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know how the American public feels about this specifically, but for me, like it feels the text messages feel less invasive than like Google telling me to like review some restaurant that I was just at um, or to become like a local guide based on like the same sort of location data. I want to read part of your piece, which I found to be interesting about the same question of privacy. Um, and it, it is the, the Jung is one of the people who you are interviewing, but it says that Jung has also been candid about the trade-offs inherent in these measures. Under the terms of South Korea's Infectious Disease Control and Prevention Act passed after the 2015 MERS outbreak, during which the government's withholding of critical information contributed to further transmission and deaths, it is now required to publish information that can, and, oh, that can include infected people's travel routes, the public transport they took, 
and the medical institutions that are treating them. Now, um, the thing that stuck out to me about all of that is, you know, like how detailed are these reports when you get them? I mean, I, I read something in the news, and I don't know if it's real or not, but it was certainly reported. And it was saying like one person uh, was, uh, it said that he had been attending like a sexual harassment, uh, a sexual harassment uh, workshop, you know, like how, how much information do they give you about what, what these infected people have been doing? You know, so this is sort of where, this is the juncture where these like mishaps, these privacy mishaps happen. Um, it's really up to local governments to decide how much information they want to disclose. Um, and obviously the guidelines state, you know, only stick to the stuff that's relevant. So something like if a patient was at like a nightclub or like a, a restaurant, a, a packed restaurant, um, I don't know if, you know, the KCDC would necessarily encourage um, officials to publish stuff like, you know, a visit to like a love motel with just one other person. Um, which actually did happen, right? And it generated all these like online comments speculating like, oh, was this person cheating? So I think that sort of, there is room for like that sort of like invasiveness. But one thing I did notice is that the KCDC, they, they have been kind of warning local governments, you know, don't don't publish too much, don't violate people's privacy, obviously, but they also have been careful not to discourage um, government officials from disclosing uh, in general. So I think they really do want to keep a mood of openness and um, a mood of openness that's amenable to these disclosures. Is there a comment section in these posts where people can 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 gossip and and freak out? It reminds me of this. We have this app over here called Citizen, which I think is the most toxic app in in existence, which is difficult to fathom. But it reports crimes in your area through geolocation. And then, for whatever reason, whenever there's whenever there's a crime, whenever there's a crime reported, there's a comment section. Comment section is on Citizen is probably the most racist, just disgusting comment section ever. But I imagine that if they had one of those in these updates of people, you know, walking from place to place in 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 Korea, that that, that would be horrible. Anyway, I hope they don't have that. Um, they, they absolutely uh, do, and like it's a huge problem here. Oh, they yeah, do. Like, they have a internet. <laughs> internet comments are like a huge controversy by themselves. Like internet comments, like yeah. you know, celebrities have committed suicide over you know nasty internet comments. Um, like they almost like bear greater weight um, in in South Korea. I feel. Compared to um, compared to like the United States, this is just my general impression. But they have, you know, they are seen as this you know big social problem, um, online bullying through internet comments. And in the story, my story, I quote a few lines from you know like a local Facebook group for my neighborhood. Yeah. And like even there, you're not really anonymous, right? Um, it's not like just adding a comment to like a news story or something. Um, and people have been getting, you know, with one patient who, you know, sort of resembled patient 31. She was, like, very active and then tested positive after a week of visiting, like, 20 establishments. Um, and people were getting, like, pretty hostile um, in the comments telling her to, like, go die by herself. Um, oh, and yeah. this is because she wasn't practicing social distancing right, at right. all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... It's interesting here that we have this thing called Nextdoor. I don't know. Are you familiar with it at all? No. So Nextdoor is, is like uh, in your neighborhood. Everyone's on it and they talk about it. I follow one. 
um, where I am now. And, you know, 80% of it is people complaining about people throwing gloves on the, on the, on the street, which I agree is disgusting and people shouldn't do. <laughs> right. And then 15, 15% are like people cheering on doctors and then 5% are like, and I think they try and take these down, but like suspected people. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, it's incredibly toxic. I mean, it's something that I, I, I do think about quite a bit, just being a little bit more civil liberties minded, I think, than, you know, your average person, which is that, you know, the, the, the implications of this mass surveillance aren't aren't non-existent right like there's there is at least uh is there a push in korea to like are there people who are not on board with this because you know i think that one of the perceptions that we have here in the west is that everybody in korea just kind of in a good confucian way like gets in line and says everything's cool and that you know we're all going to submit to this are there people who are not who are who are screaming about freedom and and uh and and don't tread on me type of stuff. I, uh, no, so there's no one really screaming about it. I think there are a few sort of concerned voices, like the Human Rights Commission here. They issued a statement. A few civic groups, human rights groups, have have warned that you know if, if things, if disclosures are made, you know willy nilly, they could violate people's privacy, um, and reminding everyone or government officials rather to kind of stick to only relevant details. Um, but no, like nobody's really been kicking up a stink about it. Um, I think most people are on board. Um, in fact, so this Facebook group I was telling you about, um, I, I initially posted something, you know, looking for someone who might have been, you know, affected by this policy in my neighborhood, uh, right? So yep. I, I mentioned in the post, um, you know, anyone who feels like they've been harmed, Anybody whose, you know, movements have been disclosed by this policy, you know, I'd love to speak to you. And the comments that I've been get, I, I got um, were ridiculous. Like, there were people who, you know, people really reacted sensitively to the fact that I would even dare to consider there could be negative side effects of this policy. <laughs> so, yeah. like, it was like a really touchy sort of subject, I felt, um, that I would even suggest that there could be, you know, certain you know, civil, liber civil liberties issues um, in such a policy. So I, I felt like that kind of illustrated how, how people are feeling about it right now. Well, one of the things you mentioned in your piece was uh, that, that one of the benefits, one of the reasons why you can do this type of testing and tracking is because of uni universal health care. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that instead of having, you know, 500 databases across 50 states with, you know, fi 50 different hospitals or 200 different hospitals. However, you have a centralized, uh, you have a centralized information system. Like, do you, do you think that this, that the Korea's response could have happened without, without universal health care? Um, no, I do. I don't. Um, just because, you know, this universal health care, the single payer system is really what made I think testing so efficient, um, it just made everything it made everything faster, basically, because you could just go through, you know, one provider, all your, you know, medical records, everything's just stored in one database. And even now, when uh, the government is providing uh, stimulus packages, and again, the reason that's been so efficient and so fast has been because they can just go off, you know, the. Um, the, the data that's stored in the health insurance system. I mean, do you, like here, one of the problems I think that we have is that uh, there's a lot of people who 
are not getting tested, not because they don't want to get tested Mm -hmm. or not because there aren't tests, but because uh, they are worried about going into the healthcare system, having to pay a large bill that they can't afford, which is compounded, obviously, by the, you know, the problems that we have financially, where there's going to be mass unemployment right now. Like, is that something that was, uh, I don't, I don't mean to be so like jingoistic or obvious about this, but like, like were were people, were there people in Korea, which has real intense classifieds? I mean, I think that, that the classifieds there in many ways are, in many ways are much more intense than they are here. Like, were there people who were on, who were afraid to get tested? Are there people who, who were afraid to go to the hospital? Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I think, you know, the... The, I think one thing that South Koreans can agree on is that the health insurance system is fantastic. Um, it's not without its problems, but I think this is one area where everyone is mostly on the same page. Um, so no one's really been complaining about the health insurance system at all. The last question I have for you is about the role that testing actually played in Korea's response, because this is something that is driving me slightly crazy, and it is that... Um, everybody thinks it's testing, 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 right? That testing is the only thing that made it so that Korea could, could get over this. And that, um, and, you know, right now I would say that you are closer to over it than any other country in the world outside of maybe Taiwan, you know, because you, like, I think today there's like eight new cases, which is mind blowing given that you had, you know, days of 900 new cases. Uh, yeah. And zero in Seoul, which is, you know, given... But, you know, if you look at the actual numbers, the amount of the Korean population that has been tested is actually not that high. You know, it's like 1.25, 1. 1.5%. Um, how much of a role did testing have in all of this? I mean, was it just testing or was it, you know, was it the preparation? Was it, fu- was it, was it isolating? Was it, was it tracking? Like, w- was it all testing or was it, was it other things? So it's not just testing. Um, I think, I mean, in order to test, you have to be able to track, you have to know who to test, you can't just like throw out tests everywhere, right, you have to do, it has to be targeted in some way. And I think tracking um, really kind of made that whole process efficient, they knew who to test. um, And so I feel like there was very little, you know, excess testing, they tested the people who needed to be tested, and they quickly isolated them, which would, I guess, then preclude need for further testing um so it's a tight yeah. ship and how did they do that did like because I, I read something in your piece where like you mentioned that people get interviewed like if they if they test positive then they get interviewed and then they they're they're sort of like uh you know like expected to just give a truthful account of who they've been in contact with and where they've been right so i think the so the interviewing is you know standard for you know any contact tracing procedure in any country i believe um, but what South Korea is doing is after they do the oral interview with the patient, um, they'll comb through CCTV footage, look at their credit card payments. Um, and by CCTV footage, it's not like, you know, it's nothing like something in their homes. It's just like, you know, say they went to a restaurant, then they would see, look at the CCTV footage of that restaurant and see who else was in that restaurant at the same time. Um, identify, you know, cases of exposure, contact those people isolate them, and so on. Um, same with the credit card payments. Um, I mentioned this in my piece, but it's, you know, when you look at someone who's been exposed just on CCTV footage, you don't know who they are. So assuming they paid with a credit card, you can get the credit card company to contact them, 
you know, on your behalf, and then, you know, repeat the same procedure. How big of an undertaking is this to trace people? Because it, you know, you, at, at the peak, Korea had 900 people per day tracing every single thing that they did, looking at the credit card information for every restaurant that they went in, for everyone else who was there, uh, contacting all those people. It just seems like a massive undertaking. Like, how, how much work is this? So, um, according to the investigators or the contact tracers that I spoke to at the Mapo District Office, which I visited for my story, um, you know, this is super lab- labor intensive. They work in pairs. I think at the Mapo office, they're around 20 to 30. Um, and right now, there aren't too many cases, but, you know, when things were like pretty serious at its peak in Seoul, um, they were just working, you know, all day. Um, it takes, you know, just to track one person. Um, they basically have to retrace their their movements. They have to talk to, they have to get information from the credit card companies, the phone companies, which takes, you know, up to a day. I, I sometimes worry that there's an inflection point with this stuff where contact tracing becomes impossible. And uh, if 900 a day, two people um, who are working on each case per day means that you need 1,800 people to do that, right? Um, and if you have 30,000 cases a day like we have here in the United States, then it needs, like, you need 60,000 people working around the clock to do that. Um, is, is there, was there a point where it seemed like the system was going to fail from, from being overloaded? Uh, you know, like, I, I think that with nine people, mm-hmm. it's not hard, but, you know, did they, were they, aware, were they worried that they were just going to get, that they were going to get flooded? Um, I haven't really spoken to any contact tracers in Daegu, but, you know, I believe that to be the case, just based on how many cases there were. So I think the contact tracing protocol might have been a little different for Daegu. But as far as Seoul goes, um, you know, I, I think cases were kept to a pretty manageable load here. Um, and partly because, like I mentioned before, after MERS, um, all the kind of central local governments, all the local governments in Seoul and in the capital area, they were already very well prepared. Um, so they knew exactly what to do. Whereas in Tegu, one of the reasons things got out of hand so quickly was because, you know, they hadn't found rumors. So they were comparatively less trained and less prepared. Okay, Max, here's the uh, million dollar question, the American centric question that we always hate asking, okay. but have to ask. Um, do you think that, do you think that we can do what you, what Korea did in terms of testing and tracing? Do you think we can do that in a country this, as big as the United States who, you know, had as bad of an outbreak, uh, had as bad of an outbreak as we did? Um, I, so one of the things that really kind of stuck with me, um, from my interviews with with one of the experts from my story was that there is an expiration date on this sort of strategy of tracing and then track uh, tracing and then early treatment and then isolating. Um, once I believe the spread becomes like, you know, once there's widespread community transmission, um, it becomes impossible because you can't really track, you know, all of these kind of chains. Um, it would just, it's just not realistic to do that anymore. Um, and I think that's kind of South Korea's strategy is to just, you know, trace as well as they can to hopefully prevent, you know, widespread, untraceable community spread from happening. Um, and so far, that's been successful in Seoul. 
Um, in the United States, I don't know how it is by region, but I think that, as I understand it, you know, once community spread is in full swing, contact tracing becomes meaningless. Yeah, I mean, it just makes sense, right? right? It's like, like, yeah, you don't need to how, be like a medical gonna... expert to, you know, know that, you know, once, you know, you have like tertiary infections, right? Um, you know, there yeah. are three degrees of removal from like the person who actually gave it to you um, or where it originated. It just becomes, you know, no amount of manpower would be enough to, you know, get that done. <laughs> that I mean that that's general. You know, here in the Bay Area, we have a very small amount of cases compared to other big cities in the United States. We're very fortunate for that mm-hmm. reason. But you know, the thing that I you know, it's still like sixty cases, fifty cases a day where I am. Um, you know, like the city of Berkeley, which is its own healthcare system, so it's actually a useful way to think about it. Some days they have like fifteen, and I can think that in a in fifteen you could do it. Mm-hmm in the city of Berkeley. But the problem is that, uh, you know, the, it's not like Berkeley has closed borders and quarantines from airports coming in into Berkeley, you know, right. like, uh, it just becomes an almost impossible thing. Um, and, you know, I am hopeful that we come up with a massive, robust testing program. But I do, you know, just from reading your work and from me reading other work that was actually about the Korean response, I sometimes worry that uh, we are following the wrong Dog. I don't know if that's an actual statement. It's not a real statement, but you, you know what I, I mean. Do. You know, like the that we are that we are doing something that is not that might have worked for you, given how early you detected or how prepared you were and the centralized way in which you handle information, and that it might not be possible over here on such a large scale, and in, in you know a country where information is siloed in a lot of ways. Um, anyway, on that, on that happy note, uh, Max, thank you for joining us. And, uh, yeah, if you can, is there anything that you want to plug? Like, is there anything that outside of the article that you want people to read? Um, nope, nothing in particular. Um, but I will say just that, <laughs> just to add on your last point, um, yeah. you know, so like, I feel like there's this impulse to, you know, draw some kind of tangible lesson from what South Korea is doing. Right. You know, people want to see, some sort of like usable solution in what we're doing here. But, you know, I really don't know if there's a kind of like, this is something that you can just sort of plug in and play, you know? Um, it depends on so many moving parts. Um, you know, anything from South Korea's high smartphone penetration rates, high rates of credit card usage. So it really is, you know, looking at it holistically you wonder whether it would be possible in you know a country like the United States or certain areas of it or the UK. Um, so I think I I hope there's going to be some you know fruitful discussion about you know if these things were to be implemented how they would what they would look like in other countries because it wouldn't be able to look like it wouldn't be able to look the same. Yeah, well, Max, thanks again, and uh, I think we will probably talk to you again before. We stopped doing this podcast, but your article was excellent, and uh, I hope everyone goes out and reads it and, you know, at least demystifies this Korean testing thing a little bit for yourself. All right, bye. Thanks so much, Jay.